Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew. We made it partway through the chapter last week. If you remember, at the very end of chapter 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful. Pray that God would send workers into the field. Someone needs to do the work of God to share the gospel in the world that we live in. I'll give you a hint. That's us. Chapter 10 begins with Jesus sending the workers into the field. Namely, he begins the chapter by naming the 12 disciples. We went through that list. We didn't have a lot of discussion. We'll have more about each one as we progress. He then sends them on a very specific mission. Go to the nation of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the lost tribe and preach to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that John the Baptist preached, the same message that Jesus preached at the very beginning, that's what he's telling them to do. And not only is he telling them to do that, he's giving them the power to do the same miracles that he was doing. You can cast out demons, you can heal the sick, you can cure leprosy. He is giving them the power to authenticate their message as they go to the tribes of Israel to share the gospel. Woohoo, that's good stuff. But the rest of chapter 10 is a discussion of the reception they are going to receive. And this applies not just to them, but to us and to missionary work from that time to the present. We know this because in the instructions to the disciples, he tells them very clearly, don't go to the Gentiles. Yet when he talks about the, the reception they're going to receive, he basically says, when you're talking to the Gentiles, this is what's going to happen. So we know there's a transition in this chapter to here's the results that you should expect. We sometimes begin to believe that since we're giving the good news, we are telling the world how to be saved that everyone in the world would respond positively or at least say, okay, let me think about that. When in reality, the world, who we are told in the first chapter of the book of John, loves the darkness, is going to respond in a negative fashion to us spreading the gospel. And I believe what we need to get out of this entire chapter is we need to not be surprised when people respond in a negative way. Sometimes we share the gospel and they say, oh, no, okay. And sometimes they just scream at us, no, go away. And we're shocked. We're shocked because we're spreading the good news. Why wouldn't anybody receive the gospel? Because we love the darkness rather than the light. So, what is the reception? It starts in about uh, verse uh, 16. I'm not sure how far we got, so we're going to read for a little bit, and then we'll start where we, I think we left off last week. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Right there, you know you're in trouble. Okay? 
There's wolves out there. We're the sheep. And Christ is saying, you're going out there. So be wise as serpents and innocent as dove. We've got all kinds of animals mixed up here, right? We've got sheep going to wolves. We're told to be like serpents, even though we know in the garden the serpent was the bad guy. We're told to be innocent as dove. Who wants to be a dove, right? We are to be innocent in that we do not need to experience the evil of this world to know that the evil exists. You do not need to participate in sin in order to know that sin is bad for the world. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know what drug addiction is like. I'd better go find out. It may be cool. And then I get the other side of it and I go, nope, that wasn't that cool. But the reality is, getting on the other side of it, I've already messed up a good portion of my life. Potentially forever. You don't have to have an experiential knowledge of evil to know that it's evil. You are to be innocent of that knowledge. Now, does that mean that we are truly innocent, that we are are without sin? No, we know that. We have plenty of sin that we already have. Don't go looking for more. While at the same time, we are to be wise as serpents. We are to know how things work in this world. How do we learn that? I would suggest go read the book of Proverbs, okay? Read it, a chapter, every day for the rest of your life. That will help. Why? Because God has given us wisdom and insight into how the world operates. We shouldn't be surprised by things. We talked about this last week, and I've mentioned it before. You know, if somebody comes through that door to arrest you, to persecute you for being a believer, there's nothing wrong with running out that door. You don't have to stay here. Now, if they catch you, and they are torturing you and demanding that you deny Christ, you can't do that. You see the distinction? We are to be smart about how we live in this world. We are to be wise. We are to be innocent of sin. We do not participate in sin in order to try to accomplish the gospel. We don't lie to spread the gospel. We don't cheat people to spread the gospel. We don't do that. We don't do that. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. That would be the Jewish half of the world. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's the rest of the world. Both groups are going to persecute you. Don't be surprised by it. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You're going to go spread the gospel, and it is going to divide the most intimate relationships that you have, potentially. 
You're going to spread the gospel and your own family might despise you. Don't be surprised by it. We have a nice Jewish community. We had this discussion last week, if you remember, right? Shock of all shock, the disciples were all Jewish. Okay? Nice Jewish children who were abandoning the faith of their fathers to go follow after this upstart named Jesus Christ. You've heard the old joke, right? The rabbi's pre- uh, praying to God. God, what can I say? My, my son has left the faith. He's gone to be a Christian. And God responds to him, so is my son. <laughs> it's an old joke. It's not that good. But what is the response going to be when this good Jewish boy leaves his good Jewish family to become a believer in Jesus Christ? You would think they'd go, oh, well, that's good. You know, in our modern day of toleration and all that, we think that's what you're supposed to say. They say, no, get out of my house. I don't want that teaching spread in this house to corrupt the other members of the household. Get out of here. So I go out and I preach. I start preaching. And the government authorities, who, by the way, are Jewish, say, no, you can't preach that here. Let's throw you into jail and whip you. Now, Nothing wrong here. We're not preaching against Judaism here. We're just saying that when you start preaching the gospel, somebody's going to react. So Paul, we're jumping way ahead in the story, right? Paul goes preaching to the Gentiles. And guess what? People start getting rid of their idols. Guess what? The people who make the idols are upset. They're losing business. They call the authorities. The authorities go get the guy. They arrest him. They put him in prison. They beat them. We'll let you loose if you promise not to preach anymore. They say, we can't do that. Because we've got to do what God has told us to do. The reality is, the more faithfully we preach the gospel, the stronger the response against it will be. Now, we have to understand that throughout history, there is this ebb and flow. There are times of persecution in certain locations, there are times where the gospel is allowed to preach, be preached in certain locations, and there's other, I mean, there are countries in this world today where you cannot preach the gospel or you will be killed. That's the reality today. In our country, we are allowed to meet in this room and we are allowed to preach and teach certain things that may or may not be changing depending on what you read and believe is happening in the world today. I got an email this week from a Christian organization who has, who has moved their seminars out of California because they're scared of what may happen to them if they teach what they're supposed to teach. Okay? I don't know. I do not know what the future holds. The point is, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when people respond negatively to the gospel. It says they're going to drag you before uh, the leaders of the synagogue. They're going to drag you before governors. Now, here's the fascinating thing. When they drag you before the governor, what do you get to do? Preach to the governor. Will it turn out well? Sometimes. Will it turn out well always? Nope. I've said in here before, Paul 
was arrested by the Romans, and for 24 hours a day, he was chained to a Roman soldier. Poor Roman soldier. (laughs) Who's going to hear the gospel? I don't know what their shift was, but every four hours, a new Roman soldier and a new convert for Paul. Who is winning the battle? That's the interesting thing of this whole chapter. Disciples, go out and spread the gospel. Here's all the bad stuff that's going to happen to you. But in the midst of all that bad stuff, here's what I'm going to do for you. And sometimes my mind starts focusing on all this bad stuff that's going to happen. And we lose sight of the good things that God has promised to us in the midst of the bad stuff happening. For example, what's in the passage that I just read? They're going to drag you before the governor. Oh, shoot, what am I going to say to the governor? What's the right word? I don't know what the right word is. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come up to you and say, tell him he's a sinner. Are you nuts? Tell him he needs the gospel. And you're going to say, okay, I'm already arrested. What can they do to me? And you're going to say, governor, I hate to tell you this. Your friends won't tell you this. But you're a sinner and you need the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to tell us what we need to say when we are in those difficult times. That's the promise. That's the promise that he's given to us. Yes. It's interesting that Luke is preaching to supposedly his brothers in Christ. Yeah. The comment was that Luther, Martin Luther, was preaching to his fellow priests and his fellow monks, and they wanted to kill him. You never know where the persecution is going to come from, and I trust you, it will break your heart, but it still shouldn't shock us. Yes. His, his question is, what would you tell a kid whose parents are Mormon, but he has become a believer himself? Okay? Let's look at all this, right? We have to obey our parents as children. We have to obey God first. So in that situation, he is required to show respect to his parents. That doesn't mean he has to do what his parents tell him to do if it violates the word of God. He has to go someplace else. Okay. It gets very difficult. No one is saying this story right here is easy. Okay. You obey the authorities until such time as the authority is telling you to do something that violates the word of God. Our problem today, this is a side note by the way, is that we want to disobey the authority until we are totally 100% convinced that they're doing what we want them to do, which isn't in the scripture, by the way. So, it is a hard situation, because you want to do, you want to be obedient and honoring to your parents, but you have to obey God first in every situation. 
And that's what causes the persecution. I mean, the Romans were very content to let the Christians believe yet another God as long as they acknowledged that it was just yet another God. But the moment they said there is only one God and his son, Jesus Christ, and Caesar is not in the pantheon, then they were out of the fold and they were open for persecution. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. This is a subject of great controversy. It really is. I grew up in a good Baptist church. Don't let anybody know, but I still consider myself a good Baptist, but we won't go there. And our pastor was very big on the security of the believer. Once saved, always saved. And I believe that. I happen to know there are people in this room who don't, but we'll go there later, okay? Once you have truly become a believer, God will keep you saved in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of everything, till you die. He will protect you. Now, having said that, there are people who walk down the aisle and claim, and when the persecution comes, they fall away. Why? Because when the going gets tough, a bunch of people just leave. And we see that. We'll see that later in Jesus' parable about the seeds. Some is thrown on the good soil, working our way backwards. Some is on the thorns. Some is on the shallow ground and some is on the hard ground and that seed that's thrown among the thorns the thorns are the persecution that comes and they just kind of choke the life out of it the question in the early church and I'll just tell you this for historical background the persecution came and we read fabulous stories of people dying for their faith they really I mean remarkable stories. The Romans come up, you know, confess that Caesar is Lord and will let you live. Nope. Off he goes. Great stories. But you know, a lot of people in the church, when the persecution came, they said, uh, yeah, Jesus, uh, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Lord, whatever, yeah, okay. And they let him go. And the persecution ended. And these people wanted back in the church. And the church said, no way. You denounced Christ. When the going got tough, you said no. Yeah, but we're really sorry and we want, let, we want to be let back in. And what developed in the Catholic church is this whole discussion of penance and all of this stuff to try to figure out how to get these people back in the church. We can't just let them back in. Because then we're kind of insulting all these people who died for the faith. We can't just pretend that it didn't happen. So let's come up with some great structure. And if you do these things, you jump through these hoops, we'll let you back in. Because they had denied the faith. What this passage is telling us is if the Holy Spirit is living in your life, 
when the persecution comes, you will remain faithful to the end. But what if I don't? What if I don't? This passage doesn't talk about that. We'll talk about that much, much, much later in some other book of the Bible. I'll tell you the answer. What do we do for any and all sin? Repent, we confess, repent, and we ask God to forgive us. It gets back to grace. It's always going to be grace. It's not going to be a question of how many recitations of some poem, prayer, whatever you say. It's going to be grace first to last. But what this passage is talking about is God will give you the strength to endure I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have been in a situation where you just felt you could not endure this for one more day? Whatever it is, it could be a broken relationship, it could be a messed up marriage, it could be a child or a grandchild running amok, it could be a disease that's permeating your body, and you just go, I cannot endure this for one more day. And God says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I will give you the strength. But just in case you forget, I'll let you in on the secret. If you die, that's okay too. It really is. It really is. It doesn't mean you lost. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, at this point, if I was so inclined, we could have a long discussion about eschatology. And we're not going to do it. There's lots of discussion about what this time means when the Son of Man comes. At that point in time, there will still be towns left for you to go to. And there's discussions about, well, this is when he returns from the resurrection. I mean, when he dies and comes back. Or it means the second coming. Or it becomes, I mean, depending on your view of eschatology, you know, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the end of it, whatever. Let me just give you a summary of what this means, okay? If somebody rejects the gospel message when you share it with them, there's always somebody else to share it with. You are not going to run out of people to share the gospel with. We're sometimes like, who was it? Elijah? It's just me, God, and nobody will listen to me. Nope. You share the gospel with somebody, and they say no. And you go, gosh, that was the last person I knew. And God, every person that I know has rejected the gospel. And God says, you know what? There's that neighbor three doors down. You've never talked to them, which, by the way, is a problem in itself, but we won't deal with that. They haven't heard the gospel. There's that person at the checkout counter. They haven't heard the gospel. There's that person over there. There's that coworker. There's that person you play bridge with. There's that person, 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 person. Don't worry. You're not going to run out of people to share the gospel with. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'll let you deal with that in your own heart. If you're sharing the gospel with someone and they reject it, I'm not just saying, oh, let me think about it. I mean reject it. 
What are we told to do? What did he tell the disciples? Kick the dust off your feet and go next door and start all over again. Yeah, but they might reject me too. They might. What do you do then? You knock the dust off your feet and you go next door. But there's a loop here, right? You figured it out? There is always going to be someone else. The problem is we give up. It's not that there's not a harvest. It's we get tired. God, I talked to one person and they said, no, I'm going home to watch TV. But I'll watch good stuff. No. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. There are people who are going to not respond to the gospel. We could actually have a discussion about the percentages. But I'm not going to do that. Because God doesn't care what the percentages are. He wants you to go spread the gospel. Because God, for some reason, has chosen to use us to spread the gospel to an unsaved world. Isn't that the craziest thing in the world? Why didn't he just clone another thousand Billy Grahams and we'd be done? Instead, he chose you. Why? Because there are people that you will come in contact with that Billy Graham would have never had the opportunity to meet. Yeah, but I don't want to talk to them. That's your problem. That's not their problem. Spread the gospel to the people that God has put in front of you. That's all you can do. Now, do we do this well? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. I told you my story a couple of weeks ago about the lady in the bookstore. Did I talk to her? Nope. I've talked to a few in the bookstore, by the way. That's a whole different story. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub... How much more will they malign those of his household? You are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing you. Number one job, conform you to the image of Christ. He doesn't care if you're happy. He doesn't care if you're well off. He doesn't care if you eat the best pizza in town. He is going to conform you to the image of Christ, and he's going to do whatever it takes to do that. Now, if they conform you to the image of Christ and they said bad things about Christ, and they beat Christ, and they crucified Christ, why do you expect it to be different for you? That's what he's saying right here. They called Jesus Beelzebub, the devil, the Lord of the flies. What are they going to call you? Why did they call Jesus that? Because he cast demons out of someone. Here is a demon-possessed man. Christ says, demon, get out of here. And the man is sitting there well. And here are all the people watching, and on the periphery are all the scribes and Pharisees going, oh my, how do we get out of this one? And they did come up with a story. Well, the only way he threw out the demons was because he's the lord of the demons. I mean, the lord of the demons can command the demons. He must be the lord of the demons. And Jesus says, that's the stupidest thing in the world. 
he'll have more discussion about that. A house divided among itself cannot... You've heard that story before, right? If they did that to Jesus, why would we be surprised if they didn't call us names also? This is the fascinating thing. At this point, we're not really even talking about beating you with rods and sticks and crucifying you. We're just talking about people calling you names. Most of us, myself included, that's enough. I just melt. I mean, I've told people before. I've told my children. You know, my child in one of his, their b- most bizarre states said, you should run for president. I said, no, I wouldn't survive 30 seconds. Because the first time somebody said negative, something negative about me, I would just melt. And we have politicians in this classroom. They're tougher than I am. Guess what? We're supposed to be tougher. If they said this about Jesus, why would you expect them to not say things about you? Get used to it. Don't be surprised. Now here's the amazing thing. You get into the apostles, you get into Paul talking about being persecuted, and guess what? It was a glory to share in the sufferings of Christ because it showed they were going in the right direction. Hmm. So, here it is. Have no fear of them. Don't be terrified of them. I've told you the story before about the... uh, Pastor in the uh, Eastern European country was dragged in by the communist, you know, stop preaching or we'll kill you. And he wrote later, so obviously they didn't kill him. He wrote later, once they figured out that you weren't scared of dying, they had no power over you. And they knew it. They could beat you, but once they knew that you had no fear of dying, They had no power over you. So have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Why not? For nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you have heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Oops. Here we are, disciples. We're sitting in this house, this small house. Twelve disciples, Jesus, maybe some other people hanging around. Somebody's got to own the house. And he says, I'm telling you things. And when I get through telling you things, I want you to go out there and I want you to stand on the street corner. No, I want you to get on the rooftop and I want you to proclaim the things that I'm telling you right now. Don't hide any of it. Why would you hide it? Because you're scared. Because you're scared that some wrong person may hear you and they may persecute you because of it. What I have told you in secret, you go out there and proclaim to the world. It's interesting. We kind of hinted at this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was healing someone and he said, don't go tell anybody. Or he healed somebody and said, go tell everybody. Generally, this is a general, not a 
total rule, but in general, at this point in his ministry, if he is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that is in the Jewish-controlled territory, he tells people, don't go tell anybody. If he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in the Gentile territory, he says, go tell everybody. That's the general rule. Why? Because he has a job that he needs to complete over here in the Jewish community. And there's going to be a time when he's going to walk into Jerusalem and he's just going to proclaim the truth. And they're going to kill him. But that's not the time yet. So over on this side, he's saying, don't tell anybody. But the things that you hear me teach, when the time comes, don't be afraid of anybody Proclaim the gospel, shout it from the rooftops. Because you are not supposed to be scared of the person who can only kill your body. But rather, worry about the person who can kill body and soul by sending the soul to hell. Now, who is the person who controls body and soul? Come on. God. God is the only person we're supposed to worry about. We get right with God and we're golden. This other group of people can pound your body to pulp. It won't be pleasant. It won't be fun. There's no enjoyment in it. But all they can bother is the body. Now this is fascinating to me because we live in a materialistic age. What do I mean by that? We are convinced that if I can't touch it, it doesn't really exist. Your body is all there is. We get into long philosophical arguments about your mind and your soul and your spirit and are these just manifestations of the electrons going off in your brain and this and that and the other. It's all material. That's what we are convinced of today. You are just a physical being. That's what the world believes. Every bit of you is just matter or energy because that's all there is. And guess what? If that's all you are and I kill you, we're done. Go ahead. Huh? He's going to get resurrected. Right. Right. We have to convince them of the truth. Just attacking them personally or ethnically or anything else probably is not going to accomplish anything. Do we really believe that there's more to us than just the body. The truth is, we are so enamored, I mean, we're, we're just so enmeshed with the world that we are raised in that it's hard for us to understand that this soul, the soul is the essence of who you really are. And you happen to be walking around in a body. We need to believe. We need to believe that there is a reward 
an eternal reward for those who seek God. There have been lots of books written contrasting the fear of God, which is what the scripture commands of us, and the fear of man, which prevents us from doing what we ought to do. I mean, we're all that way. You are, I am. I know, you know, I ought to say something to somebody, but I don't do it. Why do I not do it? I'm scared. What are they going to do to me? Probably nothing. But you know what? They could pull out a gun and shoot. Well, maybe they could, but they're probably not going to. But even if they did, who are you going to follow? Man or God? Yes, Jerry. His observation is, is that you, spread, you, you share the gospel with your neighbor. And they go, ah, go away. No huge negative response. No positive response. Just go away. But then some crisis hits your neighbor. And you show up with the meal for dinner. And the next day you show up. And eventually they go, oh, why are you here? Let me tell you why I'm here. And then we have the opportunity to share the gospel. We like to think that good times are good for sharing the gospel. Historically, there's very little evidence of that. Very little evidence. When things are going well, we believe, I must be doing great. Life is good. God's blessing me. I don't have to do anything. And when things go bad, all of a sudden we begin to think about the things that really matter. And that's us, that's our neighbors, that's our family. Once again, that doesn't mean that they're going to automatically, but that is the time that we need to step in and in love, remember that part, and in love share the gospel with those around us. (sighs) Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I've always said that's not really that big a deal for me. (laughs) I I just want you to know that on Friday, I unloaded into the church 54 cases of hair gel. Uh, There was something about bald people in hair gel that was funny at the time. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Why do we baptize people? Okay, We are not members of the Church of Christ. Some of you may be. That's okay. The Church of Christ believes that you are baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is necessary for salvation. I've had long discussions about this at work, okay? We, as Baptists, as Bible church members, believe that baptism is a sign. It's a picture 
an outward picture of the inward reality. I have accepted Christ. Christ has come into my heart. And to show this to people, I appear before the congregation and I am baptized in the water that symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to show the people. Why do we do that? Because if we will not, if we will not confess our belief in Christ before people, Christ will not, will not. Hmm. So, if I'm on a desert island and I become a Christian, we're not going to go there, okay? You're not on a desert island. You're not. You're not. Every day, you have the opportunity to confess that you are or are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And what the Word here is telling us is that if we refuse to confess that we are a believer. Now, we can get to the difficult part of this passage, which I think is covered. The person sticks a gun to your head and says, Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? We can say yes, or we can say no. But if we deny, then Christ is going to deny us. Hmm. Does that mean we lose our salvation? What did I just say a while ago? We can't do that. If we confess Christ to others, Christ will confess us before the Father. There are no secret Christians. I accepted Christ. I listened to an evangelist on the radio. I became a believer. And I don't tell anyone. And if I don't tell anyone, they won't persecute me. Life is good. If I don't tell anyone, they won't beat me up. If I don't tell anyone, they won't say bad things about me. What are we doing? We're fearing man, and we're not fearing God. The things that you have heard in secret. We sit in this room, and we talk about the gospel. Guess what? Sitting in this room, talking about the gospel, is not the Christian life. Now, you're supposed to sit in this room and talk about the gospel. We commune with each other. We share with each other. We learn with each other. But the mission is out there, not in here. What you've heard in secret, go out there and share the gospel. What does that look like? How do you do that? Well, that's between you and God. For Billy Graham, it meant standing up in front of 100,000 people and sharing the gospel. The odds are you're not Billy Graham. Just, I mean, I could be wrong. And if you are, you're probably living in sin because you should be someplace else. But God doesn't call us all to do that. That's his gift. He's received his reward. We have our gifts We need to exercise the gift that God has given us. It may just be one person. Go talk to that one person. Personally, I'm kind of fed up to here with superhero movies, but I've got enough kids, we still watch superhero (laughs) movies. 
I don't know if you've seen the movie Justice League. But there's one scene in it. There's this kid. He's the Flash. He can move faster than anybody. So they get up to their first battle, and he tells Batman, what do I do? I don't do fights. I'm just a kid. And Batman looks at him and says, save one. Which one? It doesn't matter. Save one. Then what do I do? You'll know. God looks at us and says, go talk to one. That's all you've got to do. But why, would, why do I not do that? Because I'm scared of those who can mess with the body, kill the body, instead of the one who can control body and soul. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Let's just stop right there. How many Christmas songs are there about Jesus bringing peace to the earth? What did we talk about 25 weeks ago in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And here he comes and he says, don't think that I've come to make peace. I think he's just confused. Didn't he come to bring us all together? To reconcile the whole world to God? Yes, he did. Except there's a problem. A certain portion of the world is going to reject him. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? Well, it stabs people. We'll pass that one up for right now. It slices things. It causes a division. You know, I've got a good samurai sword, and I'm a good samurai, and I'm going to lop your head off in one nice, clean stroke, and I am going to cause a division between your head and your body. Kind of nasty stuff, right? I'm the sword. I am going to make a distinction between those who are following God, that is, believing in Christ who was sent by God, and those who are not. Wouldn't it be great if we never had to divide up into teams at all and we could all just pretend we're on the same team and Jesus says, I'm not going to let you do that. Now, let's go back to the Beatitude for a moment. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to seek reconciliation between people, between people and God, with people and themselves. We are called to do that. That's why we are told, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. As much as it depends on you. Because there's going to come a time when you tell people the gospel and they are going to react negatively to you. And guess what? It's not your fault. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Now, just so we make sure we cover all the bases, if I walk up to somebody with a two-by-four and whack them and say, believe in Jesus or I'll hit you again, and they pull out a gun and shoot you, you are not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let's get back down to the bottom of the Beatitudes. The blessing only comes when you're doing the will of God and are persecuted for it. If you're an obnoxious jerk, you're just an obnoxious jerk and people aren't going to like you. That's not persecution. 
But when we have studied the Scripture, when we are seeking to emulate Christ, when we are doing what God tells us to do, when we are sharing the Gospel with love to those around us and they reject us, that's on them. That's on them. We're out of time, so we will pick up actually at this verse next week. What is the point of all of this? The persecution can come. Don't be surprised by it. Just don't be surprised. For every persecution, there is a promise that comes with it. I will be with you. I will give you the words to speak, and if you endure, it is eternal life. It's worth it. But the persecution is real. Don't think it's just made up. It's real. And at different times in history, at different locations, it is better or worse, and that's the providence of God, and we'll leave that to him. There are certain countries, as I said today, where you could go share the gospel, and they will just kill you for it. We should pray for those people. We're going to talk about that next week, so I won't get too far ahead, but it says if you share a cup of water with those people, you've given it to God. And guess what? There's going to be a reward. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that I, this week, would be more afraid of you than afraid of those around me. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.